Paul says this beginning in verse 13. He says, for he rescued us. Let's begin in verse 12 to back up a little bit and continue in from last week. Joyously giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. For he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have the redemption, forgiveness of sins. The, 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 the prayer for thankful hearts is founded in an understanding of what has occurred in those who are children of God. And, and Paul says there in verse 13, he says, the Father has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son. You know that throughout Scripture, the, the, the term and the wording darkness is, is prevalent. It's all throughout Scripture. It's used around 200 times in, in Scripture, and it's always negative. It's always negative. It, it describes a life without God, an unrighteous life, a sin-filled life. Okay, you know that physically, darkness is simply defined as the absence of light. Okay, it, it is a life without God. And, and we know that the, the work that is done through Christ, according to Paul here, is calling us out of that darkness. Okay, if you, if you just listen to John 1, 5, Jesus is the light that shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not overcome it. In John 8, 12, we're told that whoever follows Jesus will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And then in 1 Peter 2, 9, it says that God called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. He called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. This is a truth that we're going to sing of in a few moments. It'll be a new song. In a few minutes, the worship team is going to come up, and they're going to lead us in a song called Marvelous, Marvelous Light. And, and it's upbeat, and it's fast, and it may be a little louder than you're used to. And you know why? Because it's a song of celebration. It's a song that celebrates what God has done in our life. It's First Peter says, He has called us out of darkness into His marvelous light. That we as believers, everyone here, if you're standing here tonight, if you're sitting here tonight and you're a believer, God has called you out of the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his son. And we can joyfully raise up and sing. We can sing with joy in our hearts that he has done that. That sin has lost its power. Death has lost its sting. And that Christ reigns victorious in our lives. And we can sing humbly in an amazement this morning. And can it be? And can it be? It, did this really happen? Has God really done that amazing of, an award, of a work in our life? We can sing those songs with joy and thanksgiving. And that's what we'll have the opportunity to do in just a moment. But before we do this, I want us to think about this a little more. That in delivering us from darkness, God didn't just go, okay, I'm going to pull you out of darkness and you find your way. It says he delivers us out of darkness to the kingdom of his son. It was a divine rescue mission. It was a moment, if you, you think back and you think of it, 2 Corinthians 5.21, that describes it, that he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God. The, the, the divine transaction of Christ's righteousness imputed to us, that, that we had no righteousness of our own, but Christ's righteousness was credited to us. The divine transaction has now become the divine transfer from darkness to light. Our citizenship has changed. We no longer live in the domain of darkness. We live in the domain of light. 
we live in the presence of God Almighty. That is an amazing, amazing thing. And then in verse 14, he says that in Christ we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Believers, don't forget that. We, we hear that and they, they just roll off our tongue. Redemption, yeah, redemption, redemption, redemption. And we lose the meaning of it so often. So often. There's two things that we cannot forget regarding our salvation from verse 14. He says, he's, he refers to redemption and forgiveness. Here's the two things that we can't forget. When you hear that, what does it bring to mind? First is this, is that redemption means that you and I were in bondage. If you're sitting in here tonight and you're a child of God, you've been adopted into his family, then he has redeemed you from bondage. John 8, 34, Jesus says, anyone who sins is a slave to sin. They're in bondage to sin. The second thing that we have to remember when we see that verse is that forgiveness means what? There was something we needed to be forgiven of. We were guilty. We were guilty. And you look at Scripture, the message of Scripture from Genesis 3 in the fall to the gospel so clear in Romans 3 to the letters of the churches, to the churches in Revelation 3. And you look at those all throughout Scripture it's clear that you and I stand guilty before God. We are guilty. We stand as sinners. There's no way around it. No way around it. And we stand guilty before Him. But God, through Christ, has redeemed us that we would have the forgiveness of sin. Don't forget the truth of that tonight. Don't forget it. That believers, we have to remember where we came from so often I think I think believers we're guilty of sitting and forgetting where Christ has called us out of and Paul knew nothing of that Paul constantly reminded the people listen listen real quickly to this listen to 1 Corinthians 6 verse 9 through 11 or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous will inherit, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Now listen to this. Such were some of you. Us. Paul says, hey, <laughs> such were some of you. you. The people we talked about, you are them. But you were washed. But you were sanctified but you are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and the Spirit of our God. Don't forget where you came from. Ephesians 2, 1 through 4, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the Spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath even as the rest but God but God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us even when we were dead in our transgressions made us alive together with Christ by grace you have been saved we gather here tonight many of us in this room redeemed 
and we gather to worship and we gather to sing praises to his name because he has called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. If you are here tonight and you're outside of Christ, you need to know that. As we get ready to stand and worship in just a moment, you need to know that you stand in bondage, that you live in darkness, you stand guilty before God. And it's only through life in Christ that you have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Only. The worship teams don't come up. And believers tonight, we stand here and we're going to stand and we're going to sing praises to our God. Songs that declare the greatness of His salvation. Songs that, that give us a chance to celebrate and sing joyfully of what God has done in our lives. And I want to invite you as we pray to stand and sing joyfully of what God has done in your life tonight. Let's pray. God, we come before you tonight and we, we commit this night to you. God, we pray that you would be glorified, that you would be exalted tonight in our worship. And God, that you would just continue to work on our hearts as we study your word tonight. God, that you would be supreme over all things in our lives as we'll look at in a few moments. God, we want to just praise you for the work you've done. In Christ's name. Open your Bibles back up to Colossians 1, and we'll pick back up in verse 15. Paul now moves into what is perhaps one of the greatest descriptions of the majesty and the supremacy of Christ. Um, it, it's just a, a beautiful, beautiful passage of Scripture. Uh, one that, that many scholars believe is an is a early hymn. And that Paul utilizes it here. It's a, they, they're, they're not certain, did Paul write it? Or was it written and then Paul inserts it and uses it here? But regardless, we know Paul's intent. And we know the message and the, the divine revelation of God's word. The importance of this hymn must not be missed. As we look at this and we look at the fact that he declares that Jesus Christ is supreme over all things. The importance of this cannot be missed. He, he knows that as he writes it to the church at Colossae, it's vital that they grasp it. It is vital that they understand and that they live their lives in submission to Christ. That they carry out the function and the workings of their church in submission to Christ, knowing that he is supreme over all things. And we as Grace Baptists are in the same place. We too cannot miss this. We can't afford to fail in keeping Christ supreme. The, the goal and the heart cry, I think, of our church is that He would be supreme. He would be supreme in our lives, in our church. But we must, we must be careful to keep Him there. Because you know as well as I do that realistically, it is incredibly easy, incredibly easy to allow something to take a spot of idolatry in our lives. And we face a constant battle day in and day out to keep Christ supreme. And I know that some of you sitting in here, you, you don't know that Christ is supreme. You, you stand and you go, I don't, I don't know about that. 
The, the reason I would say that is because I know that there's people sitting in the room that, that aren't followers of Jesus. They're not Christians. They have not submitted their lives to Christ. And so to you, I would just say, listen to the words of these verses. Listen to the words that Paul preaches here. The message that he sends and the, 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 the understanding, the truth that Jesus Christ is supreme over all things. Because when we realize that, and we understand that he is supreme over all things as we'll see and that he's revealed himself to us through his word. That he's given us the scriptures that would make us wise unto salvation, Paul writes to Timothy. He's, he's given us his word. This supreme God who we speak of calls you into a relationship with him. And I just want to urge you to listen to these these verses tonight. Listen, beginning in verse 15. Speaking of Christ, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through Him and for Him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is also head of the body, the church. And he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him, and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Through him I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. Paul, Paul declares here that there, there's three areas that, that Christ reigns supreme over. The, the first one that he references is Christ's supremacy in creation. In verses 15 through 17, he says that Jesus Christ is supreme over all of creation. And he begins in verse 15 when he says, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. This is kind of the introduction. He starts in the hymn and he says, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. He uses the word icon there. It's where we get our word in English, icon. That, that Jesus Christ is the exact representation of who God is. That he perfectly displays God's nature and character, the being of God in his incarnation. That, that he is the exact representation. Jehovah's Witnesses fall short here. That they fall short, oh, I'm sorry, I skipped down there in the firstborn in 15b. I, man, all over my notes here. Let me back up. John 14, 9, listen to this. John 14, 9, Jesus says this. He says, he who has seen me has seen the Father. He's the exact representation. He who has seen me has seen the Father. Hebrews 1, 3 says that Jesus is the exact radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature. Listen, listen to this. This is a sermon preached by a, a man named Thomas Mallory. He says this about these verses. He says, The clearest, sweetest, and most comfortable manifestation of God to us is made only in Jesus Christ, who is the image of the invisible God. In Christ, God has revealed himself as no other means can. Christ is the exact copy or character of the Father's person and perfections. When Philip desired for Christ to show him the Father, Jesus said, Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Believe me, I am in the Father and the Father is in me. In the works of creation, God is above us. In the works of providence, he is outside us. In the law, he is against us. In himself, he is invisible to us. Only in Christ 
is he Emmanuel, God manifested in our flesh. He is God in us, God with us, and God for us. Therefore, no man ever did or ever can understand anything of God truly that is upon a saving account except in and by Jesus Christ. He is the exact representation of God. He is the icon of the Father. We see in verse 15 through 17, he talks about Jesus' supremacy in creation in four ways. The first thing in verse 15, it describes Jesus as being the firstborn. This is where the Jehovah's Witnesses make an error. It's not referring to Jesus being created, but rather it's giving Christ a, a position of rank that is first. It is a position of honor. The, the Jehovah's Witnesses say that, that Christ is among the created being, but they fail to read the entire context of the writing here. They see that in verse 16, the immediate context, that Christ, Christ is the one that created all things. All things were created by him. They, they miss that. We, listen, we can, we can avoid a lot of wrong teaching. We, we can avoid a lot of mistakes. And we can guard ourselves from much heresy as Grace Baptist Church by simply making sure that when we read something, we read it in context. When we study scripture, we study it in context. When we preach it, we preach it in context. When you hear teaching or you read a book, when you pick up a book from the Christian bookstore and it says something, you go, oh, I've never heard that before. Wow, that's amazing. Chances are, if you've never heard that before, it may be wrong. And you better examine it against scripture. Don't, don't let someone just take one verse out and deceive you. And Paul warns of this later in Colossians 2.8. He says, beware. Don't let any empty religion or false doctrine take you captive. Beware, because Christ knows that if we have a proper understanding of the supremacy of Christ, that we know that Jesus is supreme over all things, he understands and knows that if that's the case, it will guard us from much false doctrine. The second thing that he describes in creation is that he is the creator. The New American Standard, the old, they've actually made a shift. The older, if you have the older New American Standard, it translates two different Greek words in verse 16 at the beginning and in the end with the word by in English. The updated New American Standard says by and through. If you read verse 16 with me again, it says, For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. The, the previous edition of the, the New American Standard said that all things have been created by him and for him. The, the distinction there is actually important because it gives us a greater understanding of Christ as creator. The, the first word is, is best translated in, where it says by him, that for by him all things were created. It's probably a little more accurate to, to translate it for in him all things were created. It's referring to the fact that Jesus was the sphere in which all things were created. He, he, he is the place where all of creation originated. It, it, he is the sphere. The second one, all things were created by him, is, is best translated as the New American Standard has in the updated edition, all things were created through him. That Christ was the agent. He was the divine agent in creation. He's the one that brought everything into being. Okay? So Jesus is supreme over the created order for it found its origin in him and it was created and came to be through him. So we understand that Jesus is the creator. 
And in saying this in verse 16, he says what? He says that all thrones, dominions, rulers, and authorities are in subjection to Christ. They are under Christ. There is no power on this earth that we fear greater than our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He reigns supreme. He is sovereign. He is king. He alone is omnipotent. He alone is mighty and holy and all-powerful. Christ alone reigns supreme over all powers, over all dominions. Jesus is sovereign. The third, the third description of Christ in his supremacy over creation is this, and it's found in the tail end of verse 16, the last two words, that he is the goal of creation. Read verse 16 again. At the end, all things have been created through him and for him. Man, this is crucial. This is crucial that we understand that all of creation exists for Christ. All of creation has the purpose of bringing glory and honor to Christ. Why does man exist? Why are we created? To bring God glory. To bring God glory. We exist for God. He, he is the Alpha and Omega. He's the purpose of creation. He's the end to which all things exist. Everything is striving towards and going towards and directed towards Christ. He's the purpose, the goal of creation. The final thing he says is that he is the sustainer in verse 17. He says that in Christ, all things hold together. He is before all things, and in him, all things hold together. The, the wording here that in, in the Greek stresses continuous action, that, that creation is continuously being held together by Christ. He is continually sustaining everything. Hebrews 1.3 says that Jesus is sustaining all things by his powerful word. He's sustaining all things by his powerful word. If you, if you want an interesting conversation, I don't want to throw him out in front of a train or anything, but afterwards, I, if, and he may not remember all this, so I may really be messing up, but talk to Robert Parker. <laughs> and and Mar, I don't know if Huffman's in here or not. Talk to these guys. They love apologetics. Talk to them about the fact that scientists don't exact know, exactly know everything that holds all the minute parts of even an atom together. There, there's something that holds and sustains everything, holds it together. And, and, and scientists go, we don't know exactly what it is. We know it's there. We don't know how to, we can't explain it. It just is, just, it is. And God's word says, listen, here's the explanation. God is sustaining his creation. In him, all things hold together. All things hold together. Go home tonight. Here's your homework for the evening. Go home and read Psalm 104. Read Psalm 104. It talks about God's meticulous care in actively sustaining his creation, bringing forth brooks, bringing forth water, feeding his creation. It's, just, it's a beautiful psalm where we go, wow. Anybody that was deceived by the heresy of saying, listen, you know what? God is just a watchmaker. He set it in motion and stepped away, and he's just here. Anybody that was deceived by that, man, read 104. Read Psalm 104, and you understand that's not the case at all. God is continually sustaining his creation and working in the midst of it. He is not a watchmaker that set it to work and then stepped away. God sustains his creation. The second area that Jesus is supreme in, in verse 18, is, is in the church. 
that, that Christ reigns supreme over the church. Listen to verse 18. He is also head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. Just as he's head over creation, we understand that in the broad scope of things, he rules supreme over all things. But we understand also that in a very personal way, he's the head of Grace Baptist Church. That in a worldwide way, he's the head of the church universal, the, not the, the universalism church, but the church as a whole, the church across the world, that, that the church, the gathering of God's people in Peru and the gathering of God's people in Turkey and the Sudan and in Afghanistan and in Brazil, China, America, Canada, all over the world, that all believers unite under Christ as the head of the church. It's not Epaphras in Colossians. Epaphras, the one that Scott taught us last week, that had evidently gone to Ephesus, heard the gospel, and comes back and starts a church, and he's a, he's a prominent leader there from what we would guess and know. That It's not him. He's not the head of the church. Paul's not the head of the church. He had never been to Colossae that we know of. No. Christ is the head of the church. Bill Haynes is not the head of Grace Baptist Church. And neither is any of the rest of the staff. The deacons are not the head of this church. There's nobody sitting in this room that's the head of this church. Jesus Christ alone is the head of Grace Baptist Church. And we submit to him, we follow him. We're not going to follow traditions. I mean, we've busted them all over the place tonight, right? I did part of the sermon at the beginning of the night. We're not Baptists anymore. And if I, I didn't look back, but I think some of you danced. I'm not sure. I, I'm sorry, I apologize. I don't know, I may not have a job tomorrow. We don't follow traditions. We follow God. We follow Christ. We don't follow a man. It, I love Bill Haynes. I, I respect him. Bill's a mentor to me. He is. But if Bill stands up here on a Sunday morning and preaches heresy, I think there's going to be three to 400 people stand up and say, uh-uh. Because we don't follow Bill, we follow Christ. But we trust Bill and we live under his leadership because Bill follows Christ also. And praise God for that. But we serve Christ as the head of our church. Ephesians 1, and 23 says, And he put all things in subjection under his feet, gave him his head over all things to the church, which is, which is his body. One more brief note on this. You, you understand, do you see the difference in Jesus' authority over the church as compared to creation? There's a very personal supremacy and authority. A very personal supremacy and authority. It's described as a body and head. That, that he is our, our head. We are his body. When do problems arise in our churches? when we quit serving Christ's head. When Christ ceases to be the head of our church, then problems arise. He's the head. He's supreme over all of God's people. The final area of that Jesus Christ is supreme is He is supreme in salvation. It says that He is also the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that He Himself will have, come to have first place in all things. What makes Christ supreme over creation? 
his spoken word that brought it all into existence. And he created it. He's the authority over it. What makes Christ supreme over the church? His sacrificial work that called us out, as First Peter said, to be a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. It was his work on the cross that he was the firstborn among the dead. Again, this isn't referring to the fact that he was the first person that ever died and rose. He wasn't. We know Lazarus died. He rose. We know that the official's daughter, she died. Jesus healed her and she rose. But Jesus is the place of honor. He is first in rank, the most important, because it is him, it is his resurrection that all of our salvation hinges on. It is his work in conquering death that redeems us and allows us to stand before God as his children. He, that he might have come to have first place in everything is because of his resurrection. It marked the final victory that through that, the firstborn among the dead, that through that, he would have first place in all things, victory over all forces that brought us out of bondage, that called us out of darkness into his light. So what does this all mean? What does it mean? What does it mean for Grace Matters Church? What does it mean for Todd Meadows? What does it mean for the Meadows family? What does it mean for you? It means that if we're truly living with Christ as supreme, then we will see that in our life. We will live that out. Do we live this truth out? Are we acknowledging Christ's supremacy? You understand that the way I live does not give Christ supremacy. You understand that, right? If I don't live as Christ supreme, that doesn't mean that he's not supreme. He's supreme no matter what, whether I like it or lump it. So if you sit in here tonight and go, I don't think Christ is supreme, too bad. He is. Sorry. He's supreme. Do you live acknowledging that? Or do you live in rebellion and in idolatry? When we don't live with Christ as supreme, we live an idolatrous life because something is in a place of superiority above Christ. And that's idolatry. So what does it mean? Let me ask you these questions. Does Christ have first place in your family? Is Christ supreme in your family? When, when you make a decision as a family, when you decide what you're doing with your children, what to teach your children, what to buy for your children, where to go, what job to take, all these things, when you make decisions as a family, what you spend your time doing, is Christ supreme in your family? Is Christ supreme in your marriage? Husbands, do you love your wives as Christ loved the church? Wives, do you submit to your husbands in a God-glorifying, God-honoring way? Do we exemplify the gospel? Is he supreme in our marriage? Is he supreme in your profession? When you go to work tomorrow, is Christ supreme there? Is he supreme in our church? Is he supreme in our time? The things that we do, is Christ supreme in the way we set our priorities? Is he supreme in our conversations? Read Ephesians 4. Is he supreme in our conversations and the words we speak? Is he supreme in our pleasures? The things we do to bring ourselves pleasure, is that pleasure based in our own desires or is it based in God's glory? 
do we delight ourselves in God? Is He supreme in our sports? If you play sports, is He supreme when you're on the court? When we watch sports, have we put in the North Carolina Tar Heels or the Kentucky Wildcats or the Green Bay Packers or the Steelers or whoever it is in a place of more importance that we anticipate a game more than we anticipate our Lord? I'll confess to you that there's times where I have anticipated a North Carolina basketball game more than I have coming to worship, and that's sin on my part. But I can guarantee you, you're sitting there with me, most of you. Is Christ supreme in our sports? Is He supreme in our eating? We never like to talk about gluttony as Baptists. Is He supreme in our eating? Is He supreme in our entertainment, in our music? that's on our iPods. Does Christ reign supreme? Have we acknowledged it? The answer is yes, He does reign supreme. And I can't answer the second one for you. Do you live a life submitted to Christ as supreme? The worship teams don't come and lead us in one closing song. And we felt like this was a proper response to Christ's supremacy. That in light of that, in light of knowing that Christ stood before all creation, what is our response? What is our response to Christ's supremacy? It's the response that we stand with arms lifted high and hearts abandoned to serve Him, live lives for Him, and go wherever He calls us. Let's pray. God, we praise You for You are supreme. You're a sovereign. You're a majestic, mighty God. And we know that there is never a time that you did not exist. You are the eternal, mighty, holy God. You stood before all creation. And God, when we're confronted with a, a passage like this tonight, God, I truly believe that about the only response we can have is worship. That we stand and we offer all that we are to you. Whatever that may mean, God, we follow you wholeheartedly. Heartedly. God, we stand to praise you now. The supreme, sovereign God. It's in your powerful name we pray. Amen.